Archives podcast series. Textile Designs, 1842-1964. Exploring the Board of Trade Representations. Presented by Dinah Eastop. This event was recorded on the 28th of July, 2011, at the National Archives, Kew. My name is Dinah Eastop, and I'm a specialist in textile conservation. So that's my area of specialisation. And I have a PhD in material culture. And that's my kind of the intellectual baggage I bring with me to this task. And I'm here at the National Archives for 12 months as the Cloth Workers Research Fellow. So my task here is to identify ways in which the Board of Trade design registers could be made more accessible. And secondly, to increase awareness of their potential. So this talk is part of that uh, awareness raising exercise. And today I want to focus on the textile designs from 1842 to 1964, focusing more on the earlier period. And I just want to explore the representations and the registers as a resource. My aim today is to demonstrate that the Board of Trade design registers are an extraordinarily rich resource. A resource for learning, for inspiration and enjoyment. Um, in terms of learning, they have extraordinary potential for education research in terms of family history or business history. For inspiration, they're an, a source of design inspiration. There's an extraordinary range of designs. And for enjoyment, there's, they're very, very curious. There's a very odd mixture of things and quirky juxtapositions. So they're just, just curious. These registers are extraordinary because the Board of Trade design registers contain both text. They have the normal written information you might expect in a register. But they also contain artefacts. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of material in this uh, in, in this registry. And what you've got is a huge range of material. So there are actual products. There are things like leather gloves, shawls, straw bonnets, mittens, socks. Right. So in these volumes you'll find things. You'll also find samples. Um, samples of printed and woven cloths, woven shawls, samples of furnishing fabrics, samples of lace. So there's this huge diversity of material. You'll also find photographs of products, and it would appear that photography was used quite early on to record designs. You'll also get drawings of products and drawings of designs, and you'll also get tracings of textile designs. And in this uh, photograph, you can see a piece of knitting, knitted socks, a, t a drawing or a photograph probably of a tie, these extraordinary mittens. So it's this extraordinary coming together of different types of representations. So what are they? What, are, what, what is the Board of Trade design, design Register? Board of Trade Design Register. The registers consist of two sorts of volumes mainly. There are smaller text-based registers, and that's the name given to them. So smaller, ordinary-sized uh, bound ledgers called registers. And then these very, very large uh, volumes which contain the objects. 
the samples, the photographs, the tracings, the drawings. And these two things together constitute the, the, the Board of Trade Design Register. And the word representation is the word that the Board of Trade used as the record of the design. And so the representation records the design. It represents what the, the design that the proprietor wants to register. And so they can take many different forms. So together, the register and the representations constitute the design register. And here you see a photograph which shows on the left the uh, one page from the shawls volume. And you can see a sample of a woven shawl. And on the right, you can see the relevant section of the text-based register. And I think this number here. This shawl has a unique um, a design number, and its design number is 16268. And if you can match the unique design number, which you'll find on the representation, you can match it with the text in the register. And the registers are arranged in columns. And the columns are the date of deposit, the date at which the registration took place, the number of the parcel, that's the parcel that arrived at the design office, the number of the design, that's the unique identifying number, the name of the proprietor, the person who was doing the registration, who made the registration, and the address of the proprietor. And in this case, for this representation, for this shawl, um, we know it was registered on February the 15th, 1844, it came in parcel number 12. It was registered by Warren and Bateman of Norwich. And you often get the full postal address. There's a lot of information about dating, about the source, and about geography, where this company was based. So the unique number is what links the representations and the registers. It's the key to the whole collection. For the later periods, um, the representations weren't stuck into volumes. They were kept loose and put into folders in boxes. So the, the later material is, in one sense, more accessible, in another sense, more at risk of getting separated out and put in disordered. But certainly for the material from about 1900 and, and the 1950s into the 1960s, this is how you'd see the material. It's not in these large volumes, but it's in these boxes. So how many of these uh, design registers are there? There are more than 11,000 volumes in the total collection, and there are more than 10,000 volumes or boxes of design. And as a rough estimate, if you think there's roughly 100 designs per volume, that's about a million designs. And this, this is a view of um, two of the repositories where you just see the rows and rows of boxes. This is a very large collection, a very diverse collection. I just want this photograph to convey the scale of this archive, the scale of the resource. Okay, so what are the origins of the design register? How does it work? Um, the registers are one outcome of the United <coughs> Kingdom's government, government's Board of Trade, hence the name Board of Trade Design Registers. 
and the Board of Trade has a, quite a long history and it was initially had um, almost in a, just a purely advisory role. It was a committee of gentlemen who advised on plantations and diplomacy. Later it became a much more professional bureaucratic organisation with the primary aim of supporting trade and innovation. In 1837, the function of the Board of Trade was described as follows. Quote, as a department of the United Kingdom government, the Board of Trade exercises a general superintendence over the commercial interests of the empire. So that was the remit of the Board of Trade. And the design registry was set up in 1839 in response to demands from Britain's textile manufacturers for statutory or legal protection of their designs. Uh, initially, protection was given for 12 months, and the rules and the fees and the various arrangements for registration changed over time. And then there was a, a change in 1842. The Design Act of 1842 led to the creation of 13 classes of designs. There was metal, wood, glass, earthenware, paper hangings, which was the contemporary term for wallpaper, carpets, shawls printed, shawls other, yarn, printed fabrics, furnitures, which is the term used for furnishing fabrics. There was a category called other fabrics, bracket damasks, and there was a category for lace. So, so the, after 1842, the design representations were put into volumes according to one of these classes. On this slide you see the kinds of things that are being registered. On the left you see what is called the infantry cloak. It was registered in, on August the 15th 1882 and it was registered by D. Humphreys and Company, 15 Australian Avenue, uh, Dewin Street, EC uh, in London. So this was obviously a novelty product. They were registering this design for this so-called infantry coat. And it was, the co it was the design of the coat that was the innovation that they were registering. What you can see here also is that it was possible to use agents. The proprietor himself or herself could go to the design registry and make the registration. But quite a few of the registrations were done through agents. And you quite often get the agent's mark uh, stamp. So you know this particular registration has been done through an agent. The other design is of lace. And what's interesting here is it was um, uh, registered by someone called Thomas Goulder in 6 Rue de Lafayette, Saint-Pierre-le-Calais in France. And one of the things that's uh, quite significant, even though this is the British Board of Trade, quite a significant proportion of the representations are registered by um, people from companies, individuals and companies in France, Prussia and Switzerland. And those are just the ones I've come across. And there are all countries I've come across. There are also um, many uh, designs which um, arise from the empire and later, and later the Commonwealth. So it's very much an international, has an international spread. It's not just focusing on, on British products. Um, this is a, a representation um, or a design under the category of other fabrics damask. 
And what's interesting here is this is from the volume of representations, and you can see this small sample of fabric, this floral design. But you can also see alongside it that the clerk has, has written a note, and the note says that the um, registration has been extended for which an additional fee was paid. So although, generally speaking, the written information is in the registers, you do find additional written information in the volumes of representations too. There is some information about um, the procedures for registration and for searching, and uh, one of the users, one of the, people, one of the readers here, found this piece of ephemera, this sheet of paper, which is printed on both sides, which gives directions uh, for registering and searching. It, it dates to after 1858, but it just gives instructions about how you'd go about making a registration, what the current fees are, what the current classes are, and what would happen if you wanted to search to see what other people had registered. And you paid a fee, as a proprietor or as an agent, you paid a fee to register your design. And if you're someone who was curious about another registration, you could go and inspect the register and you'd also pay a fee for that. And one of the things that the, the Board of Trade was very proud of the Design Registry Office, because it was entirely self-funding. It was of no cost to the public purse, because the fees charged for the services covered the costs of the uh, organisation. This is something that's they're very, very proud of. The minutes are report this very often. So what was registered? What kinds of things were registered? And here we have some scarf designs, or possibly tie designs. It was, there are, I have seen probably hundreds of these different designs for scarves. Each one's given a very sort of, presumably name that had a particular topical Resonance. Uh, one on the top right is called the electric. This one here is, is called excellent. And another example of for texting, very early on. Text, uh, text, text speak anyway. And the other two, I think, El Kabir and Cairo. So yeah, they, they always have this extraordinary topical name. So that, but it, I, th I find it extraordinary that it was worth the proprietor paying the fee to have these designs for particular forms of tie registered. It was worth their while to register them. These are made by a company called McBride, Orr and Harwell in, in London. If anyone is interested. You also get extraordinary things like straw bonnets. And I think it's quite a feat of the imagination to think about registering a straw bonnet and then fastening it inside a large volume that could fold flat. So they are flattened straw bonnets now, but here you see two straw bonnets. On the left-hand side is one page with the straw bonnet, and you turn the page and you find the other straw bonnet. These were both registered in 1883 on the 29th of December by someone called G. Long of Loudwater, Wickham in Buckinghamshire. And apparently this was quite a famous um, straw hat company. And a specialist in straw told me that the straw would have been that the, the plaited lengths of straw would have been produced in Switzerland, and then exported to Britain for manufacture into the product in Great Britain. One of the key aims of the um, scheme, the registration scheme, was to promote design innovation and to support the commercial exploitation of good design. 
and so innovation and invention were very important features. And you get things like this on the left-hand side. You have what is a um, I'm trying to think what it's, it's a design for a ventilating waterproof hat. So you get a whole series of rather quirky products to meet particular niches, I suppose. And what we don't know is how well these things sold, but we do know that the proprietor thought it was worth registering them. And one of the first um, publications dealing with the border trade design registers is this book by Sarah Levitt called Victorians Unbuttoned. The subtitle is Registered Designs for Clothing, Their Makers, Wearers, 1839 to 1900. And she went through some of the volumes and she um, kept a record of the most quirky, the most peculiar, the most sort of inventive inventions. And it's a very interesting book and uh, I think it's ripe for reprinting. So you have these, this design registry set up to promote innovation and the commercial exploitation of innovative design. But the other side of that was that if the designs were good or thought to be good, they were often copied. And this is a case where um, this particular design, this one here, was the subject of a legal case. And the design registers were used as part of the evidence in that case. The Strines Printing Company, who produced this fabric, claimed that another company had copied five of its registered designs. And in the, um, the law case, the proprietor of the Strines Picture Company explained that this um, spade-shaped design was what was considered to be novel. And it's become favourite. It's become a favourite in the market and it's what sells the pattern. And um, the claim was successful, and Strines successfully made their claim that their um, copyright had been infringed. What's quite interesting here is these designs that they're claiming rights over, have indeed got legal rights over, are derived from India, and these fabrics are being sold to India. So, you, so, so copying adaptation and appropriation have a very, very long history. It rather depends who, who has the control. And these design registers are a fantastic source for understanding the, the centuries-long relationship between the circulation of raw products, processed products, and final products. It's a very complicated international market and has been for a very long time. And the image on the left shows um, Philip Syke, the front cover of Philip Sykes's book, The Secret Life of Textiles, which refers to the border trade design registers in his analysis of particular company records. So it's another very useful source. In this slide, you can on the, on the right, you can see 18 photographs of what are called embroidery designs for boys' jackets. And on the left, you see the, um, the front cover of Claire Rose's book, um, Making, Selling and Wearing Boys' Clothes in the Late Victorian England. And what she's done is researched the records for the evidence that they provide for the ready-to-wear um, industry. Her research shows that um, particularly manufacturers in Leeds were producing clothes 
um, very, very, uh, very, very early on for, for children. Um, it's always been thought there was a sort of hope that the children wore, you know, cut, cut down garments made at home, but it looks like there probably was much earlier mass production of children's clothes than was previously thought. And the design registers provide evidence for this. And these particular designs, what was, what was being um, registered were the actual patterns. There, there's particular embroidery frogging patterns, and they were registered. There was such a popular garment, it was worth registering 18. It's just one manufacturer registering 18 designs. This was John Barron and Sons, St. Paul Street, Leeds. I've just put four examples of other strange, strange objects. Here you see a painted, um, silk, a, printed, sorry, a printed silk handkerchief which promotes the temperance movement. Um, you have domestic contentment coming through temperance and various other virtuous things. And one of the distinctive features about the Board of Trade design registers is that the designs and the products have excellent provenance. You know to a specific day, in a specific month, in a specific year when they were registered. So you have this extraordinarily strong provenance, you know, about the, the date and the location of the proprietor, and the name of the proprietor. But also many of the, um, much of the material is in very good condition. The representations are, many of them are in very good condition. So the colour's good, the finish is often sort of, the original finish is all present, so that they are almost, in one sense, as new in terms of colour and printing quality. This is uh, another design. This was to celebrate, if that's the correct word, I'm not sure. But what we see is a piece of paper that's been printed with one quarter of a design for a handkerchief or a scarf. And it's just the design repeats. If you imagine you printed that four times and you rotated it, you get the whole design with this red centre. And what you see in the corner is Sir Garnet Woolersley. I don't know how you pronounce that. And in the middle you see the word Kumasi, which was capital of the Ashante Kingdom on the Gold Coast, now Ghana, which had been a crown territory since 1821. And there were various hostilities between the Ashanti and the, and, and the British about a long history of, of conflict. And in 1874, <coughs> Sir Garnet and 500 West Indian troops, plus three battalions of British troops, entered the Ashanti territories and, as it were, reclaimed this um, colonial territory. And they entered the um, deserted capital, which is called Kumasi, and they set fire to the palace, and uh, a lot of uh, the gold was looted. The Ashanti kingdom was a very rich kingdom, and the Ashanti palace, this palace was very rich, and a lot of the gold was taken away. So you have this representation here of the bearers carrying away boxes, presumably of goods taken from the palace, and in the middle the palace is burning. And that's what the red is, that is the inferno of the palace burning. And again, you have objects that represent this rather very, very complicated history of the British Empire. It also relates to current um, issues because some of this material that was taken as booty is, are in collections in the UK. So it's not, a, it's not just a historical issue, it's a, a contemporary issue as well. You get the most extraordinary things linked to medicine. This is something called a chemical sanitary belt and a cholera repellent. 
There's no evidence to suggest it was effective in repelling cholera, but it's the kind of quirkiness that you get in this collection. There's quite a lot of material related to sport, surprisingly, and this is a photograph of a lace curtain produced by Carrion Sons of Nottingham, and it apparently shows, well, it does show, it shows a cricket match taking place in the flatlands below um, Nottingham Castle. So it's produced in Nottingham and represents a cricket match in Nottingham. And there are quite a few rather curious lace curtains. One shows Garibaldi, so you could, you could have your particular heroes or your particular cricket match or whatever represented as a lace curtain if you, were, if you, if you so wished. Recent, yesterday I came across some, a registration for a lawn tennis apron. I haven't looked up what that is, but I'm just trying to think what a lawn tennis apron would look like. But I've got the registration number if anybody wants to, to look it up. So we've got this extraordinarily large collection full of an amazing diversity of material and information. And the question was, what matters? What is it about it that matters? And to whom does it matter? And what I did as part of this project was to um, consult existing users of the collection and also identified potential, other potential users and also people who are working on similar kinds of material. And here you can see on the left, um, I've got out um, some of the registers and some of the volumes of representations and I've put them together so the, the volume of representations is put alongside the relevant register so people can make the comparison and compare the written information with the material information. And on the right-hand side, you see some of the consultation taking place. And I have to say, there's a lot of discussion. Di different people have different views about what is significant, and they're very happy to voice those ideas. For historians, what mattered about these, this collection is the fact that it's a primary source for historical information. And they were particularly interested in the text information, the information with the dates, the proprietors' names, the addresses. That was the information that was particularly important to them. And for one of the historians you can see here, he's an archaeologist. He's, he's investigating the archaeological record and the historical record for dye, for dye houses and, dye, and textile production centres in Britain. And he's done lots of excavations of these um, sites and he's produced a very very long list of all the workshops he's been able to identify but when he came to these registers he suddenly discovered there were proprietors and names and addresses he'd never heard of which just shows what I think it shows what an, what an extraordinarily rich and detailed source resource this is he was he's particularly interested in William Morris and the dye industry that built up around William Morris's work and there are some there's quite a lot of material designed by William Morris or his company. And sometimes it's possible to identify that because the designs were registered by Morris & Co. But sometimes they were registered by other people. And what you get in these um, registers is the proprietor making the registration, not the designers. I think we live in a world now where the designer is preeminent. At this time, it was the proprietor that mattered, whoever had legal... Uh, title and financial control over the designs. This um, collection is also important for art historians and historians of design and uh, quite a lot of the materials is very rich in the particular period covered by the recent Victorian Albert Museum exhibition, The Cult of Beauty. Um, 
the aesthetic movement 1860 to 1900, and there are lots of designs relating to this um, period. The collection was, was also, also was of interest to artists and designers, partly because of the rather peculiar juxtapositions you get. Because the clerks entered each object that was unwrapped in the parcel in order in which they arrived at the um, office, the order is rather random. It's in time, but it's random. It's what came in next. So you get extraordinary juxtapositions. And here you just happen to see a, a leather glove, a whole glove, stuck in the volume. And it obviously arrived after a series of lace, bits of lace came in. So you just kind of get this odd juxtaposition. And, and some of the artists were particularly fascinated by that aspect of the collection. It's another example of a juxtaposition. Here you have, on the far side, you can see two, the, the open book. On the left-hand side, you can see something that's been folded over. On the right-hand side, you can see these samples, small swatches of um, printed fabric, dress fabric, dressmaking fabric. When you unfold the paper, you see what you've got here is a print on paper for probably a handkerchief or a scarf, celebrating this particular Tom Sayers, boxing champion of England, and displayed in the wreath round him are all his medals for 1849 to 1860. So it's this sort of quirky juxtaposition that the artists and designers found particularly appealing. Here's another juxtaposition. Here again you have on the left some of this uh, aesthetic movement uh, design based on plants, sort of a furnishing fabric. And then obviously <coughs> and the next thing that came in was this photograph and the one after that was this photograph, this little photograph here. This is a rather representation of it. But this shows a, it's a photograph of what I think is a damask quilt or bed cover for uh, registered by the Railway Servants Orphanage of Derby. So you get all aspects of, of uh, society and different manufacturers a product range represented in these volumes. And you can see that it was worthwhile this particular proprietor extending the, um, uh, the, the um, actually this one said that this, they registered it for three years with the expiry date given. For some of the artists I consulted, they were very fascinated by the actual artwork of the designs themselves. They were fascinated by the way they were drawn or the way they were painted or the way they were printed. And here we have two examples here. There's a watercolour on the left which shows a combined boa and muff bag produced by Ignac Pick of Queen Victoria Street, London, who was very proud to proclaim he was both a manufacturer and a proprietor. So this is something he was proud to proclaim. And on the right, you have a, a rather beautiful drawing of a particular set of a tassels, fringe, produced in Oxford Street. So, so, but what are the, so what are the core challenges? We've got the need to widen access, or one demands to widen access and yet enhance the preservation of these volumes. And we've also got to make them available for a, the widest possible range of users and for different uses. And in terms of access within the National Archives, that's thought of in terms of that you should be able to identify what's in the archive. So you should be able to know what is here, because how do you know what you want unless you know it's you know what you want, as it were. You've also got to be able to, we have got, the National Archive's got to be able to locate it. 
once you've identified it, we've got to be able to find it. We've also got to be able to deliver it to you. So those, those are the things we've got to achieve. And we've also got to preserve these things for the future, for future users. So that's the challenge of the access and preservation. And then we have to consider this, this need of all, the various needs of different users. So what follows are some slides which focus on some of the access challenges. And I'm just going to go through these slides quite quickly. One of the key things that I've experienced in the last, last nine months is that these volumes are large and they are heavy. This particular one, I had it weighed last week, it's 26 kilos. It's very, I cannot lift it up. It takes two people to lift it up. It takes two people to get it out of its box. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a physical challenge. As I've said before, some of these representations have been folded up. They're quite large, so the clerk has folded them up before he's adhered them into the, before he stuck them into the volumes. But that means if you want to look at them, you have to unfold them. So that's the kind of handling involved in that. And then once you've unfolded them, they're obviously larger. They're no longer supported adequately. So it's just a sort of technical challenge. Here's another example of a, uh, this is the design for a shawl. And it's a tracing. And it's a tracing that's obviously been very weak at some point, it's been backed on paper. And as it's unfolded, it becomes very large. And in fact, this one had been torn out. And so on the right, you can see the, si the full size of this particular representation. So some of them are very large. They can be two meters long. Difficult to, to, to cope with. Some of the bindings are very weak. You have to imagine these registers being used quite frequently in their kind of working life in the design registry. And it shows. Some of the representations, particularly the tracings, are very weak. It's probably the single group of representations. Of, of the representation types, this is, they're probably the weakest, the tracings. And they get very brittle and they crack, which means they're very vulnerable. Some of the designs are torn. And here you can see I'm just trying to sort of push down this particular curled up piece of paper to kind of re-establish re the original form of it. Some of the representations which were once stuck in place, the glue has failed, and uh, then they're no longer stuck in place. Obviously, once they're loose, they're much more vulnerable for getting misplaced or getting lost or getting distorted. So that's a whole other challenge. Other range of challenges is some are very creased, some are very soiled. In, at some time in the past, I think that some of the volumes must have got damp, so there's some mold growth, past mold growth. There's also been some past insect infestation. So some of the volumes have suffered a little bit. On the left, you can see a design which has obviously got wet at some point, so the blue ink has run. On the right, you see this another quarter handkerchief. This is the printed paper design, one quarter. So it's the repeat for a handkerchief design. Wait, you need to unfold it in order to see it. So you've got four or five folded representations on these two sheets. It's quite a challenge. Another challenge is that some of the, particularly the, paper, the designs on paper, where it's printing ink, printed onto paper, they remain very sticky. So sometimes the designs are folded and then the pages stick to themselves. So you can't actually lift this up safely to see what this design is because the papers are stuck together. They could be unstuck, obviously, but it's going to be quite a tricky procedure and it will take time. 
And there are one million of these. I keep <laughs> going back to the scale, the problem of scale. Okay. So what I want to now look at briefly are what are the online opportunities? What, 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 does, what, what do the new web-based technologies provide us with? And I think they do provide us with a way of making these available, making the registers and making the representations available as an online resource. And the key benefit of that would be that we could link the registers and the representations easily. So that if you knew the unique design number, you could type that in to the online resource. You'd be able to come up with both the registration information, the written information, as well as the image of the design. And that would save an awful lot of handling of the collection and would provide lots of really useful information. You'd also be able to search by, not only would you search by the unique number, you could search by the name of a proprietor, you could search by an address, you could search by um, an artifact type or material. So the potential for searching this would be extraordinary. But this is not without challenges. Um, one of the first challenges is, this is a very important, the number, the unique design number is fundamental to all of this. This is the number that the clerk has stamped on this piece of lace. Each of these bits of lace are registered separately. Each one has a number stamped on it. And they're extremely hard to read. <laughs> it can take some time to read these. And sometimes you have to deduce what the numbers are by, what, by better printing on an earlier number or better printing on a later number, and then you can work it out that way. But uh, making sure we have a good list and we've identified the numbers is a crucial first stage. Even if you've got the number, even if you know you want a particular design, you know the number, it can be quite difficult after 1842 to decide which... Um, volume of representations that particular design will be in, because between 1842 and 1884, the representations were pasted into volumes according to these 13 material classes. So the number itself may narrow down your search to 13 volumes, but it may not narrow it any more than that. You may in time develop a kind of expertise as to if it's this number and it's that manufacturer you'd know that this particular manufacturer specialised in furnishing textiles, so you'd go and search the furnishing textiles first. You'd develop that kind of expertise, but it, would, it can take a while. So the sooner one could get a direct link between the design and the number, that would be great, and that could be achieved with the, an online resource. And there are various category problems in terms of searching for things without uh, the aid of some sort of searching tool. This is class 12 of other fabrics, and here you see two open pages with lots of amazing fabrics. And only one of those, as far as I'm concerned, is a damask, meets the technical requirements of a damask, and that's the off-white one in the top right-hand corner. All the others are, in fact, not damask weaves. So if you're a pedant, <laughs> you wouldn't be looking for damasks here because you wouldn't necessarily find them. So there are some... The clerks didn't always put the... Um, design in the, in the category you'd expect it to be in. And this is a wonderful example. Um, so if you were looking for a, uh, a design for a tennis racket, would you have looked in the lace volume? 
The answer, I think, is probably no. You might have looked in the wood volume. But in fact, this is, um, this is a, the Stella Lawn Tennis Bat, and it's been um, registered under the lace category. So it's listed in the lace register, and it's the, re the design representation is pasted into the late one of the lace volumes. And that's, that would be very hard to find. But it could be very easy to find if it was an online searchable database. So I think an online searchable resource would be useful. And the question is, how do we achieve that? Um, it's relatively straightforward. The, re the registers, image capture, transcription, putting the registers, the written records online, is a relatively straightforward. The National Archives has the skill, it has the experience, it has the expertise, it has the equipment to do that. That could be done relatively straight in a straightforward manner. The real challenge is how do we do image capture? How do we photograph these, this extraordinary diversity of material? And we have to make decisions about what is important. What, what are we trying to capture when we take these kind of photographs? And in this example here on the far left, you see one of the shore volumes one page open, this is what you see. You see a shawl, uh, rather a sample of a shawl, this red and white shawl. It's quite a large sample, so that the, the, the clerk has folded, in, folded it over. In the middle, you can see I'm just beginning to unfold that, and on the right, you can see it being photographed with the flap unfolded. The question is, would we, would we photograph it with the flap open? Would we photograph it with the flap folded? It, it's, it's a decision that someone would have to make, but if you do both, you've now got two million images, not, not just one, you know, if you apply that uh, principle. So it's just, just an issue. How important is colour? Is it absolutely vital to get the, the best colour rendering that we can? Should we be aiming to get the best texture rendering? How important is texture here? How important is an overall shot compared to details? These are all issues we'd have to think about. They're sort of just purely technical problems. These volumes are very large, they're very heavy. None of them are actually flat. Even if you lie them out, you can't ever get them completely horizontal. You, cannot, you, you can't get them horizontal and you can't get them not smooth, as it were. I mean, they are just very, very three-dimensional objects. Very, very hard to photograph. And, and would you photograph this volume here? Would the tracing creased or would you feel you had to ease out and flatten the creasing? If you do that, how long does it take? Is it worth it? These are, these are all kind of costs, issues to be considered. Okay. Um, here, here again, there's some more designs from the sort of um, aesthetic movement. And the bottom design, this floral design, or plant design anyway, you can see that it's quite a large representation. So the clerk has folded it over to make it fit. The advantage of that is you can see both the, as it were, the upper side of the fabric, and you can also see the reverse side of the fabric. So from a textile technology point of view, that's really interesting. It, it helps me to, to work out how this fabric was, was made. But if we were going to photograph it, do we, do we photograph it like that? Would we like to see the whole of the design repeat? Again, this kind of unfolding or not folding is an issue. So one of the things I looked at as part of this um, 
research project was to see are there any new technologies that might help us with um, capturing the features that might be significant. And one of the things I looked at was um, could we have some sort of imaging that would allow the user when they access this material on screen to control the lighting. And there's something called polynomial texture mapping which is linked to reflectance transformation imaging, RTI. And this allows you, it allows the, the user on screen to control the raking light. So you can maximise shadows, you can maximise uh, lights, highlights as well. And you get on the top here, you see some cuneiform tablets under normal sort of photographic conditions. And on the, the lower level, you see the kind of increased um, legibility of the design once you've, you've got this control over the raking light. And it has extraordinary, extraordinary, it gives extraordinary effects for textiles too. It's expensive, it requires particular software, but it may be worth it for certain special uh, textiles. And it's just something to think about, because we have, to, we have to make decisions about what we want. The other thing I wondered about, how could, how would, if we wanted to convey online the tactile qualities, in particular textiles, the capacity to feel them, to feel the texture, to feel the finish, to feel the quality, is quite a big issue. And so we uh, arranged for a specialist in haptic technology to come along. I don't know, has anyone here had experience with haptic technology? This is technology that allows you to have the experience of touching something that you see online. So on the left you see somebody looking at one of these haptic consoles and she's looking at a Netsuki that has been photographed using digital technology and using the mouse she can completely rotate this object so she can see all aspects of it. And using this thing here, this little rather odd little item here, using this haptic pen, you can be given the sensation of touching this object, of pressing against it, finding where it's rough, finding where it's resistant, finding whether it's smooth, having the feel of going around the back of it. It's a really strange experience. It's very hard to convey. It's one of those things you have to be able to do it. But about two weeks ago, I was lucky enough, if that's the word, to conduct a gynaecological examination of a haptic cow. I mean, I'm, <laughs> that's as near as I ever want to, <laughs> to get to that experience. But it was extraordinary. It is, the, the haptic technology is, is quite extraordinary. And I think for some of the, the dress manufacturers would like in the future, in the next 10 years, if you're going to buy clothes online, you may be able to have um, some feeling of what it feels like. There'll be some mouse adaptation that will let you feel what that fabric's like, so you can make a kind of qualitative judgment on it. And again, I'm not suggesting this is an, a, an answer for the National Archives with this collection, but just so we begin to think what matters about this collection. How important are the sort of tactile qualities of it, as well as the visual qualities of it? I'm also interested in the kind of user collaboration potential because there are going to be, as I say, about a million of these design representations and I think that's a real opportunity to, en to enhance user collaboration. And um, some of you may have come to the lecture by Arfon Smith on June the 9th because I invited him to come to um, the National Archives and to explain about Galaxy Zoo, because I thought it was such a successful, innovative sort of citizen science project. 
and their, their strapline is where you can help astronomers explore the universe. And I wonder if we can think of a way where um, you can help, I don't know, historians, archivists explore the design registers because they are an extraordinary rich resource. So I think in conclusion, I just want to say that I think the Board of Trade design registers just do have a huge potential for research, for research about family and business history, also have potential for art and design practice. Uh, many of the designers I've spoken to are just inspired by them. They want to rush off and you know, work up designs based on these ideas. And they have a fantastic opportunity for user collaboration. I just want to say that there is an online exhibition already of some of the design registers relating to um, some of the Victorian uh, ceramics. So this is the website for that um, resource. There are 300 of these designs already online on the TNA website. I want to thank the Cloth Workers Foundation. My, the, the post I have is a 12-month post and it's funded by the Cloth Workers Foundation and I want to thank them very much for the support they've, they've given to this project. It's been brilliant. I also want to acknowledge the work of the University of Southampton and the Birmingham City University for the uh, haptic technology and the polynomial mapping and to thank all the people who came to the various events and people who very willingly provided me with their advice. But thank you very much for your attention. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>